Hello, welcome along to this latest podcast from the University of Brighton. I'm Richard Newman, and this week I've been speaking to Dr. Annie Ockelford, Senior Lecturer in Physical Geography within the School of Environment and Technology. Annie's also the university's early career researcher ambassador, so we talked about that. Her research, which focuses on rivers and floods, and how she recently shared her findings and research with a week-long visit to the Houses of Parliament. My earliest memory of standing in kind of rivers actually was my dad on one side and we had an old German shepherd dog on the other, um, paddling about in rivers, picking up stones. And I think that really sparked my love of physical geography. And I kind of went on to do physical geography at university um, and then I went on to do my PhD in civil engineering. So I changed disciplines a little bit, but I was still very kind of physical geography process based focused, all surrounded on rivers and how they transform our landscape. What was it then about that when you were when you were younger, when you were standing in that river that made you think this is where I want to go? Partially the pair of frog eye wellies that I was wearing, I'm not gonna lie, they were quite cool. Um you still earn a pair like that? Well, I wish I did. I should decorate some of my waders, but no. Um I think it was just you know, playing about in rivers is something very kind of restful about it and you know it was really interesting and I kind of remember asking dad about why stuff moved why the water moved where it did why the stones moved um and yeah just being outside and kind of you know not being able to kind of explore was where my kind of love of nature I think came from and how did you end up here at the University of Brighton so after I finished my PhD at Glasgow I did two uh, research posts so I was at Loughborough University for uh, three years and then I went up to Hull for a year um, and somebody that I was working with at Hull um, works here, so there's kind of a natural link. Um, and then I saw the post and I thought, yeah, OK, that's a that's a good natural stepping stone in kind of my career. Mm. Uh, can we talk then about your primary research interests? What are they? How can you describe them in the in sort of basic terms if you can? Yeah, so I'm a rivers person. So I try and look at how sediment moves through rivers and it's primarily during floods. So... When we think about flooding, we think about water and lots of water being in the wrong place and probably what we would, you know, kind of flooding our houses, ruining our belongings, um, those that sort of thing. But actually, the sediment can do a lot of damage. So all the sediment that's moved during those floods, you know, can damage kind of bridges or um, kind of infrastructure. So my research is trying to predict when that sediment's going to move, how much is going to move and kind of the implications of that. So quite often all the sediment's got quite a lot of rubbish associated with it. So things like contaminants, so things that are bad for us, are also moved during those flood events and they are kind of bound to these sediments. So most recently, in kind of those terms, it's been looking at kind of microplastics and when they move during floods and how they move through our river systems. And what influence does that have, the, the, the movement of, of microplastics? So 80% of what we have in the oceans, in our global oceans, is thought to have been or to have come from rivers. Um, so trying to understand the processes that these kind of by which these microplastics move through our rivers is really important and beginning to kind of manage them because they are really bad. You know, we've all seen the kind of the David Attenborough images of um, your turtles kind of eating plastic bags. But, you know, they do also have similar effects in rivers on kind of our things, our, our creatures which live in our rivers. It's not good for them. Mm. Like you said, the Blue Planet sort of programmes campaigning to reduce plastic in our oceans and rivers um, has sort of exploded in the in, in the past few years. You, people are much more conscious about yeah, using sing, single-use plastics. But how much damage has already been done? I think there's been a lot of damage already done. Um, you know, recently there's kind of been evidence that we found these plastics in the very deepest parts of our ocean. So kind of in places like the Mariana Trench, or the deepest place on Earth, these plastics have been found. 
But, you know, in our rivers, it's kind of, they sink through our sediments and they're kind of there as they're, and they're stored and they're just being ready. You know, as soon as these floods come through, there's these big release of these plastics. So we kind of have this ticking time bomb in our rivers that we're not really aware of yet. What's the correlation between contamination and the increase in flood risk? And um, where are the areas of most concern? So I think we we have seen it and we will see an increase in kind of how big our floods are and how often they occur. So we're going to be moving stuff through our rivers more frequently. So whether that's contaminants or sediments or plastics or whatever else is contained within those rivers, we will see that moving more frequently and at higher magnitudes of more of it. So I think trying to understand those processes is really important and kind of trying to pre- almost begin to manage how and when we look at kind of these uh, sediments moving through our systems so you, we've got the, the the point of understanding it then how can it be from that point how can it be, be prevented managed. and managed yeah yeah okay so if we know when things are going to move then we can begin to say right okay we will know we will have a pulse of contaminants or plastics moving through following this flood and we think they're going to end up here so we can begin to then manage those very sensitive kind of hotspots um, to remove them or to kind of mitigate against their impacts. So it's understanding about when they're moving and where they're moving that we can begin to kind of manage their impacts. And, and clearly a, a big part of trying to get to that point is making the people that are in power to understand these situations. You recently spent a week in, in the House of Commons, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, it's part of the Royal Society pairing scheme. Um, so I was paired with somebody from DEFRA, um, so the Department of uh, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, or Farming and Rural Affairs, and we were looking at how the new Environment Bill, which is going through kind of Parliament this year, can be managed. So kind of what what indicators can we use to say, yes, that bill's been adhered to or not? And part of that bill is kind of managing these events. So it's part of it is saying, right, OK, when we have these flood events, how do we manage what's happening? So that week in Parliament was very much about kind of pairing scientists um, and researchers with kind of MPs and parliamentarians um, and kind of governmental organisations to begin to kind of um, allow them to work together so it's not just kind of this disparate academia versus policy. Yeah, how easy is it to get those working in government to sort of work with you or to understand the situation that you're trying to put across? Do you feel like, do you feel like they're listening? Yeah, so actually, interestingly, so I chaired a mock select committee. So um, Parliament has these numbers of select committees, which are kind of very specialised um, in topics ranging from when I was there, we were looking at cybersecurity all the way through to Um, things like children's health. So I chaired a mock select committee um, and we were specifically looking at the role of academics and the evidence that they give in Parliament. And my primary question to uh, the kind of people I was interviewing was actually, do you listen and how do you use the evidence that we as scientists kind of put to you? And I think they do listen, but I think what came across very clearly was that they choose um, the statistics or the stories which fit what they want to kind of put across. So... It's almost a little bit skewed. Um, So I think the role of scientists then is to kind of try and um, make sure that we are as transparent as possible um, in order that this kind of skew doesn't kind of propagate through. Yeah, I guess it's the case of just keep on keep on pushing. Yeah. The person you shadowed, they're, they're coming here or they've been here already to shadow you? Yeah, no, so Sam will come here. Um, hopefully we are 
we've got a, a workshop that I'm hosting to do with plastics, actually, um, with a couple of other universities. And he's going to come along kind of um, and shadow me during that meeting. But he'll also be there with kind of a DEFRA hat on. Um, so he'll be able to kind of feed in about what might be useful, for example, for government policy. Um, so, yeah, he will come hopefully um, in May. Um, and yeah, as I say, shadow me. So not just in my kind of uh, research role, but he'll come to kind of hopefully university level meetings, but also he'll come into kind of lectures with me just to see what kind of university life is like. Mm. I mean, not to labour the point too much, of course, but to, to have these opportunities to keep on pushing what is an important matter is, is a huge opportunity for academics and scientists, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a, a fantastic opportunity. I met some brilliant scientists while I was there. And just the chance to talk to MPs and government organisations and just really highlight to them um, the role that academics have in trying to shape um, the policy that kind of governs um, the UK. And I think it just can't be understated. And I think, you know, it's a great scheme and more people should take opportunities of kind of applying for it. Mm. Uh, now, your research is very practical and you're very involved with outreach projects here at the university can you tell us about that yep so actually just yesterday i was doing an outreach so i had a 100 a level kids yesterday and we were talking about uh rivers and we were talking about kind of the importance of rivers so i do an awful lot of outreach um most of it's hands-on most of it makes a mess or goes bang um and it's trying to get kids involved in science and kind of thinking that actually science as a career is attainable to them so i work with a lot of schools where um the students don't have family who have been to university for example um so they would be the first generation to go through and it's just about helping them um understand that university isn't a big scary place it is completely um achievable for them and there's lots of support in place for them if they do kind of go down the university route and it's just about engaging them and showing them that actually uni is a great place it's not just about kind of the academic side of it university is a place to you know that you learn to do your own washing and your own cooking and meet mates that um you will be kind of friends with for the rest of your life so it's about showing them kind of also the non-academic side to it and just you know helping them realize that it's a great place to be yeah and it must be a very rewarding thing to do there'll be students who want to go into young people that want to go into studying science and you know your sort of area and physical geography yep. but there'll be people that maybe wouldn't have thought about it until they come to these events and then they'll go home thinking oh that's actually quite interesting I want to look into it and that's a big thing yeah absolutely so for example outside of kind of the university or outside of the physical geography side of it I'm a, an ambassador for the uh, team who are trying to build the thousand mile an hour supersonic car so bloodhound and that's got amazing opportunities because that's you know scientists mm to make the, the car go, but also, you know, artists, um, graphic designers, people who do kind of all the the technology behind it. So projects like that, you really see the sparks. But even when I'm going in and talking to schools about, you know, how great geography is at university, you, you do kind of get these students and you just get one and you see a spark going, actually, yes, I could do that. And that's, I hadn't realised that that was part of university or I hadn't realised that that was part of geography. So seeing that spark in kids is why I do so much outreach. Yeah, it's funny you said that, actually, because we're recording this on a day where uh, we have some students coming into this area in the sort of media area, okay. central media services right now, and you can see the the, the students coming in. There's first time they've been to university, and yep. you can immediately see their like their eyes light up, and they, they maybe didn't know what it was like before, and they come to see all these cool things around the university. Yeah, I mean, I think I try and make stuff as practical as possible, so I take them into places. Um, and see things that they wouldn't see at school. So, for example, we've got a big indoor river here that we can turn on and off. So I take them in there and show them, you know, kind of the sort of research that we do. But um, 
and they'll have never seen that before. So they come to university and think, oh, that's really cool. I could, you know, I could see myself doing that or I hadn't realised that that's what university was about. Um, so, yeah, showing them round and kind of, you know, giving them the, the university experience is what's really important. Yeah, we, we can't continue, I don't think, without going back a little bit and talking about that project you were just talking about with the car. Uh, can you tell us about that then? That sounds really interesting. Yeah, OK, so um, it's called uh, Bloodhound Landspeed Record Car. So it's the British team led by Richard Noble who is trying to break the thousand mile an hour barrier. Um, so I'm involved as an ambassador, so I go into schools, um, I talk to kids about um, the kind of science behind the car, um, so how it's going to work, um, but then also, you know, the kind of the logistics that are involved in it, so it's kind of the whole team approach. Um, it's been a fabulous project to be involved in, they will be going out next year um, to try and break this record, and... I'm really hoping to kind of go out so they're running it in South Africa. It's just an awesome tool to teach kids about science and how amazing science is and that actually we can break all of these kind of records and preconceptions and it's just a fabulous project to be involved in. Yeah, sounds very exciting. Um, coming back to the university, yep. when it comes to your students here, uh, what, how would you describe your, your teaching style? Is it is it very practical based? Yeah, so I'm really rubbish at sitting and listening to stuff. So I... And I know people learn in different ways. So I try and make my lectures as kind of hands-on as possible, as interactive as possible, and kind of give students the opportunity to to ask questions, to talk to each other, to learn from each other, rather than just sit and listen to me for two hours. Because personally, I switch off after 20 minutes, so I'm sure those guys do as well. So yeah, my lecturing is very much about being as interactive as possible and kind of listening to the students as much as possible and kind of involving them in their own learning. So they kind of feel that they've got some kind of... Um, ability to direct what they're they're learning you're the early career researcher ambassador is that correct yep. for the university so what does that role entail so um i work with professor tara dean who's the pro vice chancellor for research and enterprise and i basically work alongside her and people in the research and enterprise office um to make sure the kind of voice of the early career researchers across the university is heard um so that might involve for example developing some um, skills programs that they can take um, as part of their kind of professional development. It might involve um, helping Tara develop the research um, away days or research events that we hold at the university. It's also about sitting on kind of uh, committees to make sure, you know, any worries or concerns that the early career researchers have a voice within the university. Mm. Does it sort of involve getting those academics to have a bit more encouragement as well into looking into their research projects that they want to pursue? Yeah, absolutely. So it's all about kind of making networks. So, you know, we've got a fantastically diverse university. It's one thing Brighton is very good at is kind of the diversity. So sometimes it's about helping people make those links. So um, it's about thinking, right, OK, I'm a scientist. Could I work with an artist, for example? Or could I work with um, somebody from a different discipline to begin to kind of push my research forward? So very much this role is about helping them make those links and thinking about kind of how they could move away from kind of what is often sometimes a very blinkered role and um, thinking about the research in very kind of narrow terms and um, and helping them kind of expand that research and expand it to be as kind of interdisciplinary as possible. Mm. Uh, moving away from that just just slightly, you've been, you've been at uh, several institutions through study and yep. through work. What's your general experience been of higher education and how have you seen it move? I think it's changing a lot. So, I mean, my undergraduate was, I finished in 2005, so that's kind of quite a long time ago now, but... Um, kind of moving through research posts they're all short term 
and that's that's a real I think a real problem at the moment in academia is there's lots of short-term posts. It doesn't give anybody any security. And I think there's more and more of these short-term posts which are kind of popping up over academia. So it's very difficult, you know, if you've got a partner at a different institution or you're trying to buy a house, for example, you know, it's very difficult to actually do that if you're on a one, two or three-year contract. So I think that's kind of a big change that's kind of come about in academia is this kind of real increase in the the uncertainty by which kind of you can... um, think about your career but I think we've also turned into very kind of you know the students very rightly are very worried about where their you know where their tuition fees goes for example and it's about how we kind of communicate that so I think there's been a real push by universities to communicate actually just how important those those learning environments are. Now we finish every podcast by asking four questions which are completely away from your work so they're the same in every podcast we're going to start by asking you to pick a favourite place in Sussex? Okay, so I live um, in the middle of the South Downs in a little village called Alfriston and one of my favourite walks with the dog is up onto Seaford Head. So kind of you can see all the way across the Seven Sisters in one direction and back into Brighton on the other. There's also some very fine pubs all the way along the route. So that's a great place is standing up on Seaford Head. Lovely. Uh, what are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? You can pick all three of them or just one or two. OK, so in terms of listening, my music knowledge uh, is absolutely rubbish, notoriously rubbish. So I tend to listen to a very kind of eclectic mix. And at the moment I'm trying to write a grant, so it's, it has to be music that I can't sing along to. Um, so it's Carl Jenkins at the moment and A Mass for Peace, which is an absolutely beautiful piece of classical music. Um, so that's quite kind of what I'm listening to, so I can't sing along to it. In terms of reading, I'm a real bookworm. So I read about three or four books a week. Um, and at the moment I am reading Beyond the Beautiful Forevers. And it's a reread of this book because um, I recently saw the play in London. And I thought, right, I'll dig out my copy of that. So that's kind of my reading and listening at the moment. Okay. Can you describe your perfect weekend? Yeah, so I'm a real outdoorsy person. So I love to be outdoors. I've got two dogs. Um, so my ideal weekend would be to be up in the Scottish Highlands, somewhere like Glencoe, uh, walk the dogs um, with some friends, retire to a nice pub in front of a roaring fire. But I also have expensive tastes, so it would be kind of to have nice food, bottle of Dom Perignon, champagne, and then dance the night away with a Kaylee. Wow. Okay. And uh, if you could pick three people to come to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? Yeah, it's like asking a mum to pick their favourite child. Um, So it was was quite difficult. But I went with Morris Wilkes, who designed the Land Rover. Um, So I'm a a bit of a car person, uh, obviously, with my link with the Land Speed Record Mm. car. So I think I would ask him, actually, you know, when he was designing this, the Land Rover, did he know he was designing kind of this national icon? Um, and also how he could have improved the reliability. So I actually learned to drive in one that was notoriously unreliable. The second would be Johnny Wilkinson. So if you asked any of my friends, uh, that they would have said that would be the first person. Really? I, yeah, I have an unhealthy um, girl crush on Johnny Wilkinson. Uh, and when I met him, I went very silent once. So I think I would like to use this opportunity to actually have come some more sort of two-sided conversation what does that come from from a, from a, a love of rugby or? yeah absolute love of rugby so i am a rugby union fan through and through so can't wait for the summer for the world cup um so yeah absolutely love of rugby uh, I think the final person to dinner would be a Benedictine monk called Dom Perignon. So going back to my love of champagne, he was the first person to try and improve the quality of wine. So although he wasn't um, linked with champagne kind of per se, he was the first person to try and 
prove the quality of wines and then champagne was kind of born from that so uh yeah they, they would be my three people thanks to annie for her time you can find out more about her research by clicking the link in the podcast description well due to easter we'll be back here in a fortnight so check back then when we'll be speaking to dr alex zambelli from the school of architecture and design and you can make sure you don't miss an episode by liking and subscribing to the podcast on spotify and apple podcasts just search university of brighton thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks.